Well, good morning. It is good to be with you here this morning. I'm not sick uh, this morning as I was uh, last week. I woke up uh, 5 a.m. with a fever, uh, and so Bruce got that dreaded text message, uh, and uh, we had to call an audible. But uh, it's good to be back here with you and to resume our study uh, in John's Gospel. So if you have your Bible, please open with me uh, to John chapter 2, where we'll be uh, picking up this morning. And while you're uh, turning there, Many of you might be able to identify with the experience I had growing up uh, in elementary school. I was very fond of reading a mystery uh, book series uh, that was called Goosebumps. And uh, uh, I was a, a big reader of those, a series of, of thrillers written for uh, elementary kids. And uh, not everything in there is good, so I don't necessarily recommend them for uh, reading at this point. But uh, the author of those books is a man named uh, R.L. Stein. Uh, and he uh, once said that every story can be, uh, every story told can be broken down into three parts, the beginning, the middle, and the plot twist. Uh, and while that is certainly a good description of his books, uh, occasionally it also fits uh, passages in Scripture. Uh, and sometimes uh, as we read the Bible, something unexpected happens. Uh, for instance, in, in the Old Testament, after uh, Israel has gone into the promised land and conquered the greatest city in the land, Jericho. They defeated Jericho very uh, easily with the help of God. And then they go against this tiny little town called Ai, and they're defeated. The plot twist. So, suddenly something is unexpected has happened. Uh, elsewhere uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Joseph's brothers, who sold him into slavery, uh, discover that not only is he no longer a slave, but he's risen to be the second in command over all of Egypt. Now, we have these, these plot twists, these unexpected turns in a story, uh, and those always deserve our attention, especially in the Gospels. Because there are times in the Gospels where, um, where the words of Christ or the actions of Christ serve as a plot twist, and they are intended to shock us because Jesus does what would be humanly unexpected. And uh, Pastor Kevin DeYoung has said that if your Jesus never says hard things, then you don't have the real Jesus. Because there are times when Jesus acts in an unexpected way, contrary to our own thinking. And later on in John's Gospel, we're going to, we're going to see some hard sayings of Jesus. Some things that he says, some things that he calls his disciples to, where his disciples say, hey, I, maybe I need to rethink this. Maybe I'm not willing to follow Jesus as he is calling. And many of his disciples fall away. John chapter 6. And when Jesus does that, when he, when he, when he does something unexpected, it's, it's worthy of our examination and our contemplation. And what we're going to look at this morning at the end of John chapter 2 is one of those little plot twists. But to kind of take a, a running start into where we're going to land this morning, uh, in, in John chapter 2, we, we saw at the beginning of the chapter, he does his first miracle at Canaan and Galilee at a wedding. He turns water into wine. And then he, he goes up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, uh, which is one of the three annual feasts that all of the, the, the Jewish men had to go to Jerusalem and attend. So he goes up. To Jerusalem, and then he enters into the temple and sees the disgraceful things that are going on in the temple. That there are money changers and animal vendors set up in the court of the Gentiles, preventing the nations from coming in and worshiping God as they were called to do. He cleanses the temple, and then he's immediately questioned by the Jewish leaders. So, who do you think you are? What authority do you have to do these things? And he, he gives this response that kind of furrows their, their brows in confusion. He points, he says, hey, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. They're like, wait a second, how are you going to do that? It took over 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? But Jesus isn't speaking of the physical temple there in Jerusalem. He's speaking of his own body, which is what his disciples recall later on. Then we come to verse 23. Uh, and verse 23 through 25 are really going to be an introduction to the next chapter. A very famous chapter, a conversation that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. And I'm going to point to that chapter frequently uh, as we discuss this. But what, what really this, these 
passage or this verse uh, verses are about is a transition, an introduction into what is going to come next. But they are still of the utmost importance. That's why we can't just tack it on to what was uh, coming previously or tack it on to what we're going to look at next week. But read along with me. uh, Chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What we see is that after Jesus performed uh, the miracle at Cana and after he cleansed the temple in Jerusalem, while he's there in Jerusalem for the seven-day feast, he performs other signs, other miracles. They're mentioned here, but we don't have the details of what those consist of. But as he's performing these miracles, what happens? People begin to believe. They begin to look to him in faith. But what's interesting is that rather than being swept along by the tide of his popularity, right, that would be the human response. Hey, all of these people think the world of me now. Let me go and, and do what I'm going to do. Rather than entrusting himself to them, they're, they're coming and believing in him. He says no. And that's the plot twist. Because it would seem that if you or I were going to claim to be the Messiah, we would want people to believe in us. And then anybody and everybody who did believe in us, we would want to bring into the fold and claim them and say, look at all of this crowd of people that I have following me. But Jesus doesn't do that. And as we approach these three verses this morning, we see that Jesus didn't entrust himself to these people because... He knew what was in their hearts. That's why he didn't. He knew what was in their hearts and he rightly evaluated their faith. And when we, when we understand that Jesus is making an evaluation of faith, we have to realize that we better do the same. Like that uh, student in a classroom who asks the teacher, hey, is this going to be on the test? And if the teacher says no, what's that student going to do? Okay, I can go back and do whatever I want now because I don't have to focus because it's not on the test. But if the teacher says, yes, this will be on the test, all of the students are going to sit up a little bit straighter. They're going to open up their ears because they know that later on this is going to matter. That's what we have a little bit here. And by a little bit, I mean a lot of it. Uh, Because this is the test, the quality of our faith. That is what Jesus is looking at here. And if if we're seeing that he's evaluating the quality of faith, this is a test that we better be prepared for. And it's a test that elsewhere in Scripture we are called to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And so we have this question that kind of hangs as we read this. If Jesus didn't entrust himself to people then, would he entrust himself to me now? As he looks at my faith, what would he say? What evaluation would he come to? And that question might seem foreign to you. Why do we even have to ask that? It seems like everybody who, who comes to Jesus in faith, doesn't it say that Jesus will receive him? That's going to be answered this morning as we look at uh, this passage. And we're going to see two truths that we should keep in mind as we evaluate our own faith. As we look at our hearts, as we pray and ask for wisdom from God's Spirit and God's Word, as we evaluate ourselves, here are these two truths about Jesus. Number one, that Jesus does not accept superficial faith. And secondly, Jesus has perfect knowledge of human hearts. Those are the two things that we need to keep in mind as we evaluate our own hearts and lives here. But let's look at that that first truth, that Jesus does not accept superficial faith. This is in verse 23, in the beginning of verse 24. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. So Jesus is still here in Jerusalem for the seven-day feast. And the people that begin to believe in his name are not the Jewish leaders who just questioned him uh, in the previous passage, but it's the common people. Uh, The common people, uh, everyday Jews who are coming and seeing and hearing his teaching and beholding what he is doing, they begin to observe the signs that he is performing. And as a result of those signs, they believe. The faith of the crowds was prompted by the experience of these miracles. That's what got their attention. It was not that they had a genuine understanding of who Jesus was and what he came to do. And that's demonstrated by Jesus' response to them. And uh, in the Greek, what what John is trying to do is he's, he's making a very sharp contrast between the response of the people and the response of Jesus to the people. We see this at the beginning of verse 24. So after saying, hey, uh, many believed in his name, verse 24, but Jesus on his part. So the people are doing one thing. They're responding one way. But then Jesus responding to the people's response doesn't entrust himself to them. And again, kind of a a bummer about the the, the English here is uh, there's a play on words that kind of gets lost in translation. It's the same Greek word that is used for believe and entrust. So the idea is literally these people were believing in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. That's the emphasis here. Jesus decided not to believe in their faith because he understood what prompted their faith. And that type of faith, a faith that's, that's prompted by the miraculous, uh, a certain spiritual experience is usually suspect, superficial, and short-lived. And that's one of the themes in John's Gospel. See, John's writing, uh, the purpose of his Gospel is found in chapter 20, verse 31. He's writing so that we would believe. And throughout uh, this Gospel, he's going to to show us that there are really two different types of belief in Jesus. There's a... uh, a belief in Jesus that begins and then falls away. And that's a, that's a man-driven belief. Just somebody say, hey, I'm going to, to believe. And ultimately, every time that happens, that, those individuals fall away. It never lasts. But a second type of belief, the type of belief that, that Jesus is going to confront Nicodemus with in the next chapter... Jesus is going to say to Nicodemus, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the teacher of Israel, say, hey, you have to be born again. Your your faith needs a a reboot. You need to be born from above. It's not something that you can control and do in your own strength. And that is the type of faith that we are called to have in Christ. If you you turn the page over to John chapter 1, we saw this in the, the prologue to the gospel. John chapter 1, beginning of verse 12. But all who did receive him, receiving synonymous with believing, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, that's the type of faith that's going to last when it's a supernatural act of God working in our hearts and minds granting us faith in Christ. But man-made, superficial faith is not going to last. And that's what we're going to see in the Gospel. If you, if you turn over to John chapter 6, it becomes very evident uh, in that chapter. Verse 2. It says, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So why are the people following They are seeing the miraculous. Hey, I want to see that. Then look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. There's another bit of a plot twist. Who would refuse to be king? Even when claiming that he is the king, when he is the Messiah. He says, no, not yet. Because he knows that this crowd is only interested in the miraculous. If you look at... Verse 26 in that same chapter, Jesus answered them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is right after Jesus performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000. So you're not following me because you believe in me. You just, you're hungry and you want to eat. And that's when Jesus is going to say, I'm the bread of life that you really need. Not physical bread, but the spiritual bread that is Christ. That is what we see. And then later on in that same chapter, verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And then verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The grievous words. But that is why Jesus didn't immediately entrust himself to the crowds. Because he knew what was in them. And the same category of a pseudo or false faith is seen in the other Gospels as well. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. It's a sobering passage. Elsewhere, Matthew 13, when Jesus is speaking of uh, the parables of the kingdom, he says uh, of the church, that the church is going to be made of wheat, but Satan's going to mix in among the wheat tares. And those are going to remain until the end of the age. So what we see in the church is those who have a a genuine saving faith and those who have a, a superficial faith, whose faith is not what it should be. It's also evident in uh, the, the parable of the soils. If you turn over to Mark chapter 4. For the sake of time, we won't read the giving of the parable. We'll begin with Jesus' explanation of the parable in Mark 4 verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, and the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And that parable is so instructive because it shows us again that not all faith is saving faith. That there are some who will believe for a time, they receive the word with joy, but what, what happens? If they fall away when tribulation or persecution arises and things get difficult. But what we see is that Jesus does not entrust himself. He does not accept that type of superficial faith. So if that's the assertion being made, we we can ask why. Why doesn't Jesus accept that type of faith? Well, number one, it it lacks a true knowledge of him and a true love for him. Pointing to that Matthew passage, Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. There are people with a knowledge of Christ, but who will not enter into heaven. They will not enter into a relationship with him because they truly do not know him now. Secondly, that type of faith is not accepted by Christ because it lacks true discipleship. What have we already seen in John's gospel? John chapter 1, when, when uh, Andrew and Peter came and, and met Christ, they believed in him. And then what did they fall, begin to do? They began to follow him. That is what Christ calls us to. Not merely to, to walk an aisle or to pray a prayer, but to begin to follow him as a disciple. First command in John's gospel is, follow me. Come. That is what Christ wants. So it lacks true knowledge and love for him. It lacks true discipleship. 
And thirdly, Jesus doesn't accept this type of superficial faith because it requires no work of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is a man-made faith. Again, as we're going to see in, in coming weeks in John chapter 3, Jesus is saying, you, you must be born again. You must be born from above. And unless that happens, Jesus will not entrust himself to you. The Spirit must work in your heart, in your life, transforming you, giving you a new heart so that you can be interested in spiritual things. Otherwise, we have no desire for that. The crowds had a superficial faith in Jesus. They didn't know him. They didn't love him. They didn't want to follow him. They were just interested in watching the miracles. That always gathers a crowd. One uh, pastor says this, says, Jesus calls people to trust him for who he is, not because he passes the tests we set. Those who had been attracted by the miracles would, would have been ready to try and make an earthly king of him, but he did not entrust himself to them. He looked for genuine conversion, not enthusiasm for the spectacular. And that, that's our natural inclination, just as, as human beings. We love the, uh, the excitement of something that seems special and unique. We love the spectacular. And uh, churches in the last couple hundred years have begun to, to know and understand that. Uh, if, you, if you read church history, about the middle of the 19th century, uh, people began to try and manufacture religious experiences for people so that they would be attracted to the church. If you give them that experience and they will want to come, then you point to that experience as proof or demonstration of their faith. And uh, there was, in 2014, a little bit of a, an uproar uh, in church circles when uh, a church in North Carolina uh, called Elevation Church, which is led by a man named Stephen Furtick, they published a document to try and help other churches duplicate the, the growth that they had been experiencing. And the document was entitled, ironically, uh, Spontaneous Baptisms, a How-To Guide. And uh, that guide was published on, online, and then both uh, religious and secular news services got a hold of it. And uh, there was quite the backlash. Uh, and I'd quote to you from a religion news service report that the elevation supposedly spontaneous baptisms are carefully planned ahead of time with people planted in the congregation to start to walk down the aisle. So they plant people in the audience. They're going to set up this service with spontaneous baptisms. They plant people and then they, tell, they say 15 people will sit in the worship experience and be the first ones to move when pastor gives the call. And they'll move intentionally through the highest visibility areas and the longest walk. And the elaborate staging uh, guide continues to explain that how we activate our faith, this is the rationale behind what they're doing, how we activated our faith to pull off our part in God's miracle. The spontaneous baptisms are done quickly, quote, on average between 30 to 45 seconds to keep things flowing, the guide suggests. The guide says, think of the changing room in terms of a NASCAR pit stop. The how-to guide explains it has to be quick in and quick out. And the church provides everything a new convert could need to get ready for baptisms, from dark-colored T-shirts and shorts in various sizes, hair ties, deodorant, flip-flops, and makeup remover, and cheering volunteers man the door to usher the traffic of new believers toward the front. And another set props or preps the converts for a dip in the baptismal pool. Now, there's nothing wrong with being prepared for baptisms. Nothing wrong with that. But to manipulate a crowd by planting people in the audience and then treating baptisms as a, as a NASCAR pit stop, that's the very definition of manipulating and manufacturing a spiritual experience. And why does that work? Because what we see here is that is our innate human desire. We want that type of experience. But in my mind, creating and manufacturing that type of experience is almost the, the epitome of evil. And why do I say that? Well, because 
to create that type of experience, to, to manufacture and, and manipulate, to play on people's emotions and to, to create this feeling that everyone's moving forward at once and I, I should go up as well. Because what they do with that, the net result is they point to that experience and they say, well, that's proof of your faith. That's proof of your salvation. But that's the exact opposite of what we see in this passage. Jesus, Jesus doesn't just call us to that one-time experience. That, that spiritual high that you get of, of rushing down, hey, I want to do this. That's not what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to follow Him. To discipleship. And such a practice would reveal one of two things. Number one, it could be a serious ignorance of spiritual truth. They're just not aware of the significance of baptism. They're not aware of the wickedness of manipulating people into thinking that they are, say, that they have a relationship with Christ. Or on the other hand, it could be a serious ignorance or it could be a serious dismissal of spiritual truth. And if it is the latter, there's nothing worse than to lead people astray and tell them, yes, you now have a relationship with Christ when they truly don't. That is what we see here. If Jesus does not accept such superficial faith, how can we know if we are guilty of having such faith? If that's unacceptable to Christ, then we naturally want to examine our hearts and see, well, where am I with this? Where is my faith? And what does true saving faith look like? And uh, it's easier to, to hold up what is true in Scripture and allow that to be the biblical measuring stick. And, what, what I, I have for you there on the back of your sermon notes is a, a very valuable tool. It's something that uh, John MacArthur's published in the back of his study Bible. He refers to it as the, the character of genuine saving faith. This is the, the, the best resource I've ever seen on this. It's, it's brief, it's concise, and I would encourage you to go and, and look over it in your time. Look up uh, the, the verses, but I wanted to, to walk through this briefly with you. As we examine our hearts, here's things that we should keep in mind. That evidences that neither prove nor disprove one's faith. His visible morality, and the, and the reference there is uh, the rich young ruler. When Jesus was having this conversation with the rich young ruler, what was the rich young ruler's impression of himself? He was outwardly moral. Jesus says, okay, we'll keep the commandments. He says, I, I've done that. What else do you want me to do? Let her be an intellectual knowledge, merely knowing that God exists, merely having an understanding of what the gospel is, that all men are, are sinners who have rebelled against a holy God. And that the only way to be forgiven and redeemed, reconciled to a holy God, is by believing, placing our faith and trust in Christ alone. Merely understanding that message of the gospel doesn't necessarily save you, because there are plenty of people who know it but don't believe it. You must believe so visible morality, intellectual knowledge, or religious involvement, merely being involved at church, attending church, serving in church, doesn't necessarily mean that you genuinely know Christ. Even serving in ministry or being convicted of sin. Feeling bad over sin is the work of the Spirit upon your life, but it's not necessarily demonstrating that you are born again. And he says, assurance. Matthew 23 is what he, he points to there, and that is pointing to the condemnation of Jesus to the Pharisees. Now, go look at that chapter. If you had had a conversation with a Pharisee, say, hey, Mr. Pharisee, are you going to heaven? What would his response be? Absolutely, without a doubt. But Jesus goes and, and condemns them for a long list of sins that they focused on rather than loving God and loving their neighbor. Merely having assurance does not mean that you have faith in Christ. Nor, letter G, is a time of decision. And a time of decision is one that's the most easily manipulated. And uh, as a children's pastor, I would often have parents come in and ask me, so, so when do I uh, encourage my, my child to pray that prayer? Or if they've already prayed that prayer and they're, now they're struggling with whether or not they're really a believer... What do I do? What do I say? I said, well, don't point back to an action. Don't point back to a work that your child has ever done. Don't point them to praying a prayer. Don't point them to 
baptism? Because do either of those things save you? No. Have them examine their heart right now. Do you believe? And when they say yes or no, then you point them to Scripture. If they believe right now, then you you take them to the promises in God's Word that says, for all those who believe, they are saved. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Take them to 1 John. These things were written that you may know whether you have eternal life. So that, that first category of evidences that neither prove nor disprove one's faith. And then look with me at Roman numeral number two. These are the, the true proofs of authentic Christianity. Number one is a love for God. That when you have been born again, when the Spirit's worked in your life, you now have an affection for God and for the things of God. Secondly, you will turn from sin. You will repent. That's the, the opposite flip side of faith. If you truly believe that your only hope in life, the only hope of reconciliation with a holy God is faith in Christ. And when you understand that he's given his life, that he sacrificed himself to purchase your redemption, when you understand that, you will naturally want to follow Christ. When you truly believe that, you will begin to live differently. Thirdly, genuine humility. Fourth, a devotion to God's glory rather than your own. Continual prayer. Selfless love. You begin to love your neighbor. Separation from the world. Spiritual growth and obedient living. You will begin to obey the call of discipleship that Christ has placed upon your life. That is how we should evaluate ourselves. That demands our attention, this, this self-examination. Which category is true of you? And if you look at that, that last little statement there on the bottom, it says, if list one is true of a person and list two is false, there is cause to question the validity of one's profession of faith. So if someone's saying, I've been baptized, I prayed that prayer, but I have no desire to know God, no love for God. Well, let's examine things. Can we speak definitively on someone's salvation? But it's between them and the Lord. I can't open anyone's heart up and say, oh, yeah, they're a believer. But I can look at Scripture and say, I can point you to this and say, hey, you know what? There may be a cause for concern in your heart and in your life if you've done these outward external things, but there's no inner transformation. And yet if list two is all is true, then generally speaking, that that first portion will be true as well. If you have a a transformed heart, a transformed mind in life, you probably can look back and say, I know when I began to follow Christ. I know when God worked in my heart and gave me a new heart, and suddenly I had an affection for spiritual things where previously I didn't want anything to do with it. That's what we should be able to see within our life. And so this, this first portion, this reality that Jesus does not accept superficial faith, it should cause us to, to examine ourselves. To, to look deeply and intently according to God's Word. And don't base it on a feeling that you have. Base it upon the truth of the Word. And then this, this second portion of our passage, the second truth that we see is why Jesus chose to withhold Himself. This truth is that Jesus has a perfect knowledge of the human heart. Look with me at halfway through verse 24. It says, Because... He knew all people. That's why he did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. So what we see is that that Jesus knew all people. It wasn't just the people there in Jerusalem. All means all. Every. He knows all people. And then the Apostle John says what he doesn't need. And when I read this in my own sanctified imagination, I, I hear my mom saying to me when she's upset, let me tell you what I don't need right now. Uh, and John says that. Let me tell you what Jesus does not need. He doesn't need anybody to bear witness to him about what is in man. And this is a big deal because what we've already seen in John's gospel is there is a, a theme of, of witnesses and testimony that, that's born. What we saw in chapter 1, 
a man who came as a witness, John the Baptist. And humanity needed his testimony about God. We needed John the Baptist's witness about who Jesus was. But here's the opposite. Jesus does not need any witness to know who we are. That's that's not needed by him. He already knows us. He knows what is in us. That third statement there in verse 25. So he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about him or about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Which is quite remarkable. To be fully aware of what's going on in every single person. Now there's a a certain human detective that you might be familiar with. Sherlock Holmes. Right? He, he has a great knowledge of people. He notices these, these small things about them, and then he knows these really big details of their life without being told. But all of that is by the power of observation. All of that is just uh, observing and then uh, deducing certain truths. And you and I have, have similar skills, although certainly lesser than, than Mr. Holmes. Uh, you know those people that you are closest to. Okay, I know when my wife is upset. I know when she's uh, had a long day and needs some help with the kids. I know when she's going to tell a joke. I know when she's confused. We all have a certain inductive knowledge of people that we are close to. That's because we've made observations. There's been a pattern of their behavior. We begin to notice certain things about them. But Jesus' knowledge here is not based upon powers of observation not saying, hey, I have observed these things. This is a supernatural knowledge that Jesus has of our hearts, of the human heart. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 47. As Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Why did Jesus know that? Because he's God. Because he has an understanding of the human heart. But look at Nathanael's response. Nathanael said to me, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. See, Nathanael understood what Jesus' knowledge of his heart meant. It meant that Jesus is God. Only God has a a perfect knowledge and understanding of the human heart. And what's interesting, in in the Judaism of of this time, there were seven things that the rabbis taught that were unknowable uh, to humans. You couldn't figure it out. Number one was the day of death. Number two was the day of consolation. Number three was the depths of God's judgment. Can't know it. We don't know what our reward will be in the future when we stand before God. Also, what they said was, uh, no one knows the time when the Davidic kingdom would be restored. And nobody knew the time when the the evil kingdom of Rome, according to the, the rabbis of that day, would be destroyed. And the seventh thing is that nobody knows what's going on in their neighbor's heart. You can't know it. Those are the seven things. And interestingly enough, in the Gospels, what we see is that Jesus knows all seven of those. He's aware of all of them. What we see here is another assertion, another clear claim that Jesus is God to know the human heart. What we read earlier in our scripture reading, that God looked upon the heart of David, looked upon the heart of his brothers. That's why he said, no, not those, but I'm I'm looking for David. Where's David? Jesus has a clear understanding of people's hearts. And that's going to help us in evaluating why Jesus speaks the way he does in the remainder of the gospel. Because as we we come to John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, it's going to be two really big conversations. The first is with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And the second is going to be uh, a Samaritan woman at a well. And Jesus, because he knows the human heart, he's going to guide the conversation in a unique way. You look with me just at, at John chapter 3. 
Beginning of verse 2, it says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Like that. That's not what he asked. That's not what he's talking about. But Jesus guides the conversation there because he knows what is most important. He knows what Nicodemus is really coming for. Jesus guides those conversations in a supernatural way because he knows exactly what's going on within their hearts. And, and here's something that's very sobering. Don't just keep this on the pages of Scripture. Don't just keep this as, well, Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts. Jesus knows what's going on in your heart. Every moment of every day. Deepest, darkest secrets and your greatest triumphs and joys. Christ is aware of them. And that can either be a curse or it can be a comfort. It can be a curse because it shows us that we can't hide from him. We can't escape from him. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Jesus knows everything about you. There's no place for you to run. You can't escape from him. Psalm 139, verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? His presence and his awareness, his knowledge is intimately tied together. And that's the point of Psalm 139. No matter where you go, God's there. You can't escape from him. So that's where this this truth of... Jesus' perfect knowledge of man can be a curse, but it can also be a comfort. Because it means that Jesus knows all of our trials, all of our tears, all of our temptations. If you turn over with me to the end of John's Gospel. After Jesus is raised, he's going to have a conversation with Peter. Peter, the one who, who denied Christ three times. After Peter said, hey, Jesus, I'm ready to die for you. I'll follow you. Let's do this. Jesus says, no, you're going to deny me. And that's exactly what Peter did. How did Jesus know? Because he has a perfect knowledge of the human heart. Look at what, what happens in this conversation between Jesus and Peter. Chapter 21, verse 15. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. See, to to Peter, who knew that he loved Christ, what what did he appeal to? He appealed to Jesus as the all knowing one. Jesus, you know my heart. You know that when I denied you, I still loved you. It seems to be the implication of what Peter is saying. That's how the, this, this truth about who Jesus is, that he is God, can be a curse and it can be a comfort. It can be a truth that humbles and breaks our hearts when we are in sin. And it's a balm that heals and restores our souls when we are hurting. Cuts both ways. And these two truths that we see in these verses, that Jesus does not accept superficial faith and he has a, a perfect knowledge of human hearts, we have to keep these things in mind as we evaluate our own faith. And, and here's the, the sobering reality. We can deceive ourselves, but we can't deceive Jesus about whether or not we believe. And this passage reveals that not all faith is saving faith. One of the greatest heartaches in ministry that I've already experienced is 
is seeing that. Seeing people who have walked with Christ for a time fall away. I've seen it with you students. I've seen it with adults. They walk for a time and then they depart. And what that departure really means is that they were never truly following Christ. That their faith was never genuine. They did not truly believe. That's what we, that's what we see here, but to, to give you hope as well. That this man that we're going to be introduced to next week, Nicodemus. So on the one hand, there is a skeptical faith that's never genuine, never puts its root down. On the other hand, there's individuals, there are people who start with that type of faith. Skepticism about who Jesus is, and yet over time, as they begin to follow, as they begin to walk with Jesus, they begin to believe. See, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter 3 at night, trying to figure out who Jesus is. But then in John chapter 7, verse 50, Nicodemus begins to to show that he's wrestling with the claims of Christ. Chapter 7, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus, initially questioning, then begins to say, Well, maybe we need to give him a fair hearing. Do we need to hear from him? Then in John 19, verses 38 and 39, we see that after Jesus was crucified, verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, And Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So what we see is that even though for a time these two disciples, who were of the the leaders of the Jews, they followed Jesus secretly because they feared the Jews. Sometimes that is also the case. there There are some who who outwardly claim to follow Christ, but they really don't. And there are others who secretly are following him. But that secret faith eventually has to be made public. That's what we see with Joseph and with Nicodemus. Secret faith can only last for a time. But in both cases, Jesus knows our hearts. He knows where we stand with him. And as we've gathered here this morning, here's what I would urge you to do. To examine your heart. That's what we are called to do. That is always a good thing to do. When, when, uh, when you students come up and, and they say, I'm wrestling with my faith, I say, praise the Lord. That is a good thing. It's much worse to not wrestle with it, to think you're in it, and then really not be in it. Wrestling with your faith is always a good thing. But I would encourage you, as you are wrestling, go to God's Word. Don't go to other places. Go to God. And what we've seen here this morning, it will probably prompt you to do one of two things. Number one, would might prompt you to try and run from Jesus, the one who, who knows you perfectly. I don't necessarily like that he knows everything about me. I don't like that he knows my deepest, darkest secrets. But he does. And you might foolishly try to run from him, even though, as we've seen, you can't. The other option would be to run to him. That would be what I would encourage you to do. You can't run from him. You can only run to him. And whether you're walking in the Spirit or walking in sin, sometimes as as Christians, we allow sin to, to creep into our lives and then we allow that to continue to separate us from Christ. We don't want to draw near to him. But that's what we're called to do. And we can do that because also think about this. Jesus knows you perfectly, and he still wants you. still wants to know you, still wants you to draw near to him. He knows all of your worst attributes, all of the ugliness, all of the sin. And he still says, come follow me. Because he wants to transform us. 
I pray that that would be our, our heart's desire, that we would draw near to Christ this morning. As we draw near to Him, that we would cry out to the One who knows us perfectly. Echoing Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We can pray that prayer to Christ. Let's go to him now. Almighty God, we, we thank you for your goodness, your grace that you have extended to us through your Son. Lord Jesus, we are deeply humbled by your perfect knowledge of us. And Lord, we are sobered. We are humbled. Lord, you have our attention by this fact that that not all faith is saving faith. That there are some that you do not entrust yourself to because they truly don't know you. They don't want to follow you. They have an appetite for the miraculous. They have an appetite of spectacular, but they have no desire to know and follow you, Jesus. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to rightly examine our hearts, that your spirit would illuminate our minds to see and behold whether or not we are truly following you in faith. Lord, help us to grow, increase our faith, Lord. Help us to walk before you. Help us to forsake any sin that exists in our life. To abandon it. To follow you. Because you know our hearts. You know every sin. You know the depth of our love and affection for you. So Lord, work within us. Lord, grant us spiritual life through the power of your spirit. And Lord, help us to faithfully proclaim the gospel to others. Lord, help us to not encourage others to a superficial faith, but to encourage others to true discipleship. If anyone wishes to come after you, Lord, you have said that we must deny ourselves daily, take up our cross, and follow you. May you strengthen us for that task and that endeavor and increase our faith today. We ask this in your precious name, Jesus.